This is episode number 288. What makes transitions so difficult? With Rebecca Helford. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our upcoming weekly conversation that takes place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, hosted through LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of grief, resilience, gratitude, appreciation, and many other topics. If this is of interest to you, please consider joining us on any given Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time or searching any of the previous conversations through our archive on YouTube by simply searching Overcoming Odds where you'll be able to find a complete directory of all the conversations that we've had to this particular point. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our work, and that is if our work has had any form of impact in your life, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google, or supporting our cause by making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today. Now, let's get back to the show. So I know, okay, we we left off at this topic of transitions. And like I told you, for anyone that's tuning in right now, I had to hit record. Otherwise, we were going to have a podcast prior to the podcast, which is good. But at the same time, sometimes there are some things that get missed in the process. And we were talking about this concept of transitions for anyone that's tuning in right now. And in particular, we were discussing this question of what makes them difficult. And then you started to share a little bit more about the grief, the perceived loss, So I'm wondering if we can possibly pick up from there and then kind of just transition along, no pun intended, into the conversation. It's all transitions, you know. (laughs) The the illusion of sameness, that's all, you know, we have the illusion of sameness, but it's all transitions. Nothing is ever the same. Everything's always a little different. I came to start thinking of transitions and why they're so difficult in light of the idea that transitions are a form of grief. I began to learn this in my experience hanging out with very small children, my own and others. I work primarily as a marriage and family therapist with parents of very young children. I do a lot of therapeutic groups with parents and toddlers, parents and infants. And I remember reading this article about the healing power of children's tears that when they're upset about something, something they didn't get, something they wanted to go a particular way, and when they start to cry, you know they're beginning to let go. They're beginning Mm -hmm. to accept the reality that does not conform to their expectations. And when I read that, it locked into place with another model that I have from my experience in psychology, which is a pretty well-known model, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model of the stages of grief, which are helpfully acronym as DABDA, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And I was like, oh, the tears, the tears of a child who's letting go of 
it not being TV time or they don't get to have an extra graham cracker. That's the depression. Their, their tears are tears of sadness that give way to acceptance of the reality that isn't what they wanted, but is the new reality. Mm. So transition is hard for a few reasons. One is because it's this weird limbo space, this weird liminal reality between here, which we know what it is, and there, which we don't know what it is. So it's an unknown on our way to something that's unknown. So that's tricky. And we're not great at dealing with the unknown, particularly because of our culture in our Western industrialized left hemisphere dominant culture. We're not so great at dancing on our feet, flying in the moment, improvising. We have atrophied our right brains that are much better at dealing with novel situations, finding new patterns. So we're already at a disadvantage when it comes to dealing with the changes that are always happening and being in that weird limbo space. And then there's the grief of having to let go of something that was. And like you said, it could be a perceived loss. It could be an actual loss. It could be some of both. And then I think the third problem is that something I call grief resonance. I don't know if I'm making this up, but one, <laughs> right? No, let's, let's say I'm making it up, but it's probably a thing. I'm not a grief researcher. I'm not a grief specialist in my work, but I, I think any clinician, any psychotherapist is touching on this in their work. Any loss echoes all the other losses you've ever had. So they all come up in that moment. So any transition feels like every transition. Any loss feels like every loss. Um, and we're, we're used to just kind of moving on in this sort of Western world of ours. We don't have commonly accepted cultural societal ways of grieving together, of mourning, of moving on, of letting go. Cultures of the past used to have whole rituals and establishments. You know, you used to be able to, you could hire funeral criers. You could hire women to mourn, you know, there were, there used to be ways of doing this that our ancestors knew. And I, I think we're in such a busy moving on society that we are disconnected from that. But our children remind us that transition is hard, but we can grieve, mm -hmm. we can mourn. Um, and move on, it doesn't mean what's lost doesn't still hurt because it's gonna come up the next time. Those are some of the things that, you know, mm -hmm. I've kind of come to hang out with when I'm thinking about why transition is so hard for everybody, not just for little kids who didn't get to buy the toy at the store, or in the case of my daughter, didn't get to buy the Trader Joe's gingerbread Halloween <laughs> house, which is, the worst thing ever, Trader Joe, I love you, but stop selling those things. It's just an excuse for <laughs> six-year-olds to like lick icing. Um, you know, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's hard. Where do you think, what do you think happened? Where do you think, I, I don't know whether it's in history or in our society, certain things shifted because even when it comes to this concept of tears that you mentioned, I'm thinking about it from more of a, I guess you could say grown up, whatever that means. Whatever that per, means. Yeah, perspective where crying has not only been seen as a sign of weakness, but I have found myself that because of that societal expectation, that, that societal image, there was a point where I actually forgot how to cry, so oh. to speak. And so what I started doing, and I do this, and I've shared this many times, like I literally have a reminder in my phone every month 
and there's a soundtrack and everything and I just play it and I just remind myself what it's like because I find that to be so healing to for me it's a recharge it's it's a complete recharge of emotions energy and everything but I'm curious as far as your own perspective what you've observed where do you think the society took a turn where it did become okay instead of embracing this concept that transitions are always going to be there we're going to value security we're going to value stability we're going to value staying stagnant going Mm -hmm. with the flow instead of waking up and not knowing what the world is going to bring to you today yeah which is really the reality for many of us right yet we we make ourselves think otherwise yeah i mean you know i think I think about this a lot where where humanity took a left turn somewhere and other folks have been documenting aspects of this in various points, various fields in, in history and psychology and addiction medicine and attachment research in sociology. Everyone I think has a piece of this puzzle that I affectionately refer to as living in captivity, mm. right? Um, we're, we're in some ways no different than animals living in the zoo. They're living in an environment to which they were not adapted and in which they cannot reasonably be expected to thrive as they would in the environment to which they are adapted. So there's this thing called the uh, environment of evolutionary adaptedness or the EEA, if you're not into long things. And (laughs) we have one, we had one for 95% of human existence. We know what it looked like because many humans today are still living in that way Mm -hmm. in small bands of hunter gatherers, multi-generational units where there are five adults to every one child, five to one ratio, which blows people's minds. They're like, how can I get that? And I want to know too, because that's what our children demand of us. And we all know those of us who have kids know that one parent, two parents, are not enough you know what else happened in these hunter-gatherer bands that we lived in well we participated in all of life together from birth to death and everything in between we saw all of it and we had ways of making sense of it in a cultural felt way of knowing with story with healing rituals you know and this is still going on today in some indigenous societies um a chunk of humanity took a left turn, um, I think. And, you know, other folks have kind of pointed to the, the dawn of agriculture as a way that we began to turn away from this way of living because agriculture is a very different lifestyle from hunter-gatherer life. Subsistence living, even subsistence farming, you can't assemble, uh, you can't assemble wealth. You know, mm-hmm. you can't consolidate it. You can't have one person having more than another. How would you do that in a hunter-gatherer band? It would be, it would not be possible to own more than somebody else. So all of a sudden we start getting wealth divided. And then we start having classes and then we start having, um, you know, people having to protect their wealth systems and then amass their wealth systems. And then we have things like the industrial revolution coming in where we start to automate things and take the human out of processes and speed things up and mechanize things and humans start to feel a little bit like machines or we're in competition for machines and you know um you will know harari talks about this a lot in in his books he talks about it in in um uh it, really in all of his books i think it's one of his main theses but um 
it's, you know, 95% of our evolution was not spent doing what we're doing right now, mm. right? Another big turn, I think, at least I see in my work with parents is around the middle of the last century where families moved away from their parents and we saw the rise of the nuclear family, you know, the, the two parents and the kids and the, you know, the two and a half kids in the garage and the cat and dog kind of living in the suburbs lifestyle that became, you know, the subject of our fond memories. It's like, leave it to beaver living, but it's not the way we evolved to live. And all of a sudden this necessity of living that way starts to separate us out and detach us from one another. And instead of living in this more collective, collaborative, compassionate way, we're living in a much more competitive, detached way. Kids now have to sleep in their own rooms and they have to cry until they fall asleep because mom and dad need to get up. Dad needs to get up and go and work at the office for you know 45 years until he gets a gold watch. And he needs to sleep and there's no one to help you. At, at nighttime when the baby is up and awake. So everyone needs to be separated off doing their own thing. Kids are sent off to school to be in groups of the same age, which is also not part of our ancestral heritage. You know, locked into these sort of same age groups going through life to the point where when I see people in my practice or in groups who have a baby that they took home from the hospital, that's literally the first time they ever hung out with a baby. Unless they had younger siblings, unless they worked in early child care, had cousins or something, that's the first time they've hung out with a small child. They have no idea what it's like. They have no idea what to expect. Same with death. Like, I think we've all been experiencing quite a bit more death than we would like to during these last 18 months, whether it's due to COVID or other things. And that's another big transition, one that's very hard for us to fathom. But again, we're so removed from it. It's this whole other sanitized profession. It's taken away. We don't see it. We don't experience it um, as part of a life cycle. It's not integrated as part of our experience. So I think all of these things just sort of silo us off in these little bunkers, all feeling alone, all feeling alien. Um, when most of our existence, it wasn't this way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be this way, um, but it is for now. And I, I, I kind of, I see it as a bit of my mission in my work with folks to wake people up to that fact, not necessarily to say, let's all, you know, burn our phones and like run off and live in the woods or something. Cause I like my phone, I like my running water, I like my sanitation department, I like all those things. I like the grocery store, but I, I try to introduce these things as a way of sort of like opening people up to the matrix that we're in and being like, you know, you can take the pill. Which I don't remember which is the good pill. Is it the red pill or the blue pill that Morpheus gives mm. him? You know, I think it's the red pill. Yes. Let's just say it's the red pill. You know, to be like, look, you could take this pill and be like, look, you know, this isn't perfect. This is far from how humans expect in an evolutionary fundamental level to live in this world. Um, so what can we do about it? What are the things that human beings need to thrive, to navigate the constantly changing landscape that we live in? And how can we find those things in a world where those things are rare and scarce and precious, mm -hmm. you know? What do you think developed – so A, this is fascinating for a variety of reasons, and the reason why I'm actually not saying anything is because I'm completely mind-blown by the way that you 
exactly stated a lot of these because there's a lot of truth behind what you just said. I think there's a lot of truth. First thing that I wanted to point out is this concept of tribal living to more communities. That's really what it's become. Instead of being one giant community, now we've become different sections of communities. I mean, you walk through a neighborhood, every household is a community. And if we're being honest, many of the households strive for their own sense of community. And that's to have children, to have a dog. I mean, there is a reason why you walk through neighborhoods and one house has a fence and the other one doesn't. What does that represent? It represents that this is my space. This is my territory. This is what I've quote unquote conquered in a way. Yes. Yes, it's the, imperialism the, writ small. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's imperialism writ small on a small scale. Ownership. And, 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 that's, and that's what it made me think of. And, I, and I'm curious in regard to that and in regard to this concept of transitions, but I also think that there's another topic within what you discussed, and that's the sense of freedom. Yeah. I think many of us, I can't speak for what that number is, but just based on observation, I think many of us are striving for that. Mm-hmm. But I'm really curious, what does that even mean at this point? What does yeah. it, what is freedom considering yeah. what we know now? I mean, it's a really great question. And it's one I struggle to try to answer myself. I, I don't know how to answer that on a large scale because I do feel like there are so many ways that we've gone so far down the rabbit hole as, mm-hmm. as a species, you know, as a, as humanity on this planet that I, I don't know how to make the right turn away from the left turn that we did, you know, um, back at the dawn of agriculture. Um, and that's a transition, right? I, I often like to say to families when they're trying to get through a, a period of developmental crunchiness, you can't turn a barge around on a dime. You know, these things take time. You've got, it takes time to course correct. and. There are movements that give me hope that, you know, that we're thinking about how do we liberate ourselves from these structures that were intended to be time savers. They were intended to protect and, and, and save us. You know, there is some goodness in wanting to be liberated from the throes of nature. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to depend on there being a good you know, a spontaneous crop season in the natural world for us to gather from. What if we could just make that ourselves? What goodness is there in that? It's wonderful. So there you go. There's agriculture. Great. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could save some time so that we didn't have to do all these tedious tasks? Great. There's automation. There's, you know, the industrial revolution for you. There's good intention behind all of that. I think that was all hoping to give us freedom, but I think freedom what does it mean, you know, when we talk about freedom? Freedom from what? Freedom mm-hmm. to do what? Um, I don't know. I, I, I get hope that there are forces that are trying to, say, attend to the calamity that's happening in the environment. You know, all of these things have consequences. Um, hunter-gatherers, our ancestors had to live in harmony with the planet because they depended on it on a much more visceral level. You know, if they destroyed what they were living on, it wasn't exactly practical, you know, and we're so removed that the consequences are a little more removed of what we're doing. So it does give me hope that there are movements that are working to try to bring environmental justice, that are working to try to bring racial justice, you know, the, 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 
the cycles of racial oppression are part of this whole story. Mm -hmm. You know, if how can you look at another person, whatever they look like, as lesser, as property, if you live in a more egalitarian society? You just kind of can't. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another vestige of this way of of looking at society, uh, a way of looking at human life. So for me, the big picture, it feels a little bleak. I will definitely say that. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, the impossible choices that we're faced with every day. Um, I think particularly women as a result of the, the, the sort of women's live and feminist movement got sold this bill of goods that we could have it all, mm -hmm. can have it all. And fast forward, you know, some decades from that, and oh, hey, hi, you, you kind of can't, you cannot have it all, at least not by today's standards. You can't have an awesome career and an awesome marriage and awesome kids and get eight hours of sleep every night and wake up looking fresh and, and perky and all of those things. Like, it's just, you can't, that's several lifetimes worth of stuff. So where, what is the freedom that we're looking for? Um, I mean, I, I come upon this regularly myself, which is, you know, the freedom to feel safe with the, with enough people who, who I love and who love me back. Someone who would pick me up from the airport from, so pick me up from LA international airport, which is the world's <laughs> most terrible airport and not give me a hard time. And I wouldn't feel guilty about asking them. I've lived in Los Angeles for 20 years. I don't think I have that person what what's what's wrong with this picture right or that if you know if my kid gets quarantined and it, because someone in her class was exposed to COVID that I have someone I can call to be like hey can you come over and help me look after my kid for a couple hours so I can go to work and I don't feel guilty and I'm not worried about did I pay them or not or are they even available someone who's just there for me someone who I can cry at or mm -hmm. on when there is grief or loss happening and they remember that it's okay to cry. They remind me with compassion and grace that I can put my head on their shoulder or in their lap and I can cry and I'll feel better. Like, I think those are things that, that give us a kind of freedom, a freedom to be human. Mm -hmm. um, not in all of the ways that I think we need to be free from this captive existence, but those are the things that I think particularly when it comes to dealing with transition and dealing with change that I feel like I'm sorely missing, you know? Do you think that's, do you think that's partially due to the choices that you've made in your life? Do, do you think there's something else at play? Do you think that, I, I don't know, the expectations are simply too high for, for meeting people? Because I have found this to be true for many people that I would have conversations with and I would ask them this question as far as who are the people in their lives that they feel that support them and value and appreciate and hear them and all these other things. And I kid you not, the common consensus is one to two people. Sometimes it's zero. Yeah. So others have, for me, I've been very fortunate to have at least 10, at least yeah. 10 people. But that's because, I mean, every day I, I put in intention behind building it. I try and go deeper. Very rarely will you find me on the surface swimming. I, I'm, I'm going in, you know, if we have a problem, we're, we're going to the core. We're not going to beat around it and manifest another problem out of that problem. So 
I'm wondering in, in regard to your particular set of circumstances, is that a series of decisions that led to the outcome or is there something else at play? Yeah, you brought up some really important points. I mean, I think it's a yes and to, mm -hmm. you know, like, yes, it's my choices. And each of our choices exist within a cultural context that informs the kinds of choices that we're supposed to be making, the sort of narrative we're supposed to be following, you know? Um, and the narrative that I was supposed to follow was, you know, you do well in school, you go to a good college, um, you succeed in college, and then the world opens up to you. And then you, and then you go and follow your dreams and the money will follow. Mm. Like, is that a familiar story? <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's baloney sauce, man. It doesn't it's exactly baloney. happen like that. It's baloney, but that's the story that my parents knew to tell me. And it took me years of therapy to realize that I wasn't defunct because that story didn't manifest, but that that story was baloney and that our culture has a problem with helping people navigate these gritty journeys where there's unknowns at every turn. And, you know, there isn't one right path. There isn't an easy story of how you get from point A to point B to point C. It's really, it's really messy. Um, so I followed the story. I followed the, the culturally programmed story of success that I was supposed to live into. Um, and it was messy. And it took me a long time to sort of find meaning and find purpose out of the mess that I got into at the end of that story. Um, and I feel like I have done that. And I think I think the tricky part is that because of this siloing, for lack of a better word, where we sort of, you know, we focus on one thing, we're, we're stuck in one age group, or we have to pick a major, or we have to pick a career, you know, like, you know, we're asking five-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what, you know, what's, what kind of job do you want to have? And that's kind of ridiculous, as though that's the measure of a person, you know? Um, you know, I think we wind up having to sacrifice and find, try to either find all of our eggs in one basket, all of our meaning and purpose and culture and community and, you know, all of that in one place. And it's often a job or our life partner or our kids, like pick a, pick a basket and put all of your investment into it. Um, but I think largely, you know, why do we, why do we wind up doing that? Why do we wind up over investing in, in these relationships or experiences? I, I think because the conveniences and affordances of modern life allow us to be able to tolerate being alone much mm. more easily, right? Um, your statistic is not an anomaly, sadly, that most people have like one zero to two mm -hmm. super close people and the truth is it's hard to have people it's hard to have a ton of people in the inner inner sanctum mm -hmm. you know there we all have sort of spheres of closeness and we probably have a lot of people that are kind of acquaintances and people that we see on a daily basis and, and actually those were some of the people we missed the most during the pandemic because you didn't see your grocery guy you didn't see your the you know the your your favorite checkout lady at the at the drugstore or whatever 
and then kind of moving in, you've got the, the people in the inner inner sanctum, the people that really know you, but more and more today, people have fewer and fewer of those. And I think we've replaced the village that we need with other forms of village that are more convenient, more available. Our, our TVs, right, like it or not, um, I don't think they're evil, but they are the village now. They're the mm -hmm. digital village. Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instacart. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And we form these relationships. Um, they're, what are they called? They're called, um, oh gosh, they're called like para-relationships. I, I wrote a blog post about it. But they're, they're basically sort of pseudo-relationships. So we have this one-way relationship. We feel connected to Tony Soprano. We feel connected to all of these people, our favorite characters on these shows. So it kind of, it sort of fills that sense of relatedness but it's like Splenda, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not the real deal. So it's not, it doesn't satisfy, A, it doesn't satisfy in the way that the real thing does. And B, it doesn't meet the needs. Tony Soprano is not going to come bring you chicken soup in the middle of the night, but that's what's <laughs> there, you know, that's what's there. And plus our society, we've basically hijacked our primal reward systems in our brains. So the dopamine system is, it's basically the chemical that says, do that again, it'll help you survive, right? So in our ancient landscape, that was things like salty, sweet, fat, sexy, right? Novel, not new things, right? So those were kind of the main things that your brain would squirt out this little chemical um, and say, do more of that. The problem is, is that now those things are available in the most symptom, like their most, um, concentrated forms and in abundance so we can just spend our whole lives chasing the dopamine tail and get distracted from other things that you know have been important to humanity for you know millennia and that's not a personal problem again like again we we this is another fallacy another delusion of of western society that we get stuck thinking about things as being individual problems like oh i'm an addict or i have an eating problem well can we look at this on a larger scale and look at the societal problems that and, and the societal problems the biochemical problems the evolutionary mismatch problems right evolutionary mismatch meaning we're not in the environment that we were designed or sorry that we evolved mm -hmm. to, to survive in right can we look at it on that level um, Johan Hari wrote a really wonderful book all about, uh, he's, it's called Lost Connections, and it's all about what he says are the real causes of addiction and what we can do about them. And surprisingly few of them are personal, biological. Most of them are societal, cultural. Um, and I think opening up the camera lens to see all of these things, I think that that's a form of freedom, you know. I. I don't know what else to say about the kinds of freedoms that we can we can have mm -hmm. and what's possible right now given that you know we're not going to destroy the world order right now like what i don't have a better idea of what to replace it with mm -hmm. yet lots of people have had ideas about that you know they don't always go so well you know <laughs> as mm -hmm. we know from various revolutions over time you think you have a better idea about how to run civilization think again <clears throat> I think civilization may have something to do with the problem. And unless we look at that, I think we're just going to be stuck feeling alone 
um, grieving mm-hmm. and, you know, it's kind of stuck. Yeah. You bring up a lot of really good points. I think the first point is in regard to this dopamine and, and you're right. It has gotten to a point, at least from my perspective, where we're literally are given the source of, of okay. a lot of this. Netflix, you literally, here it is, pick whatever you want. If you can't pick, we'll pick it for you. Yep. And it's an instant source of dopamine. Social media is like that. Yep. Now you don't have to question, where do I find the people? Where do I find the posts? Go here. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's, you know, the whole thing with the likes, the comments. I mean, I was just having a conversation like this with a group of my friends. And I said that part of the reason, one of the challenges for me is that there is an addiction, but it's also become part of the human experience Yeah. because yeah. now it's the norm. Now it's yes. expected. And in fact, when you don't, then you're fighting a different battle and that's how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? Where is that group that doesn't use, uh, not necessarily doesn't use social media, but doesn't check it as often as I do, which is every right. five seconds, which is right. really ridiculous because you know how much of the world can really change when you don't have millions and millions and millions impressions. So that's one thing. But the other thing that I, I'm curious as you were sharing all of this, in your opinion and based on your experience, do you think this form that we're experiencing right now, as far as instant gratification, dopamine everywhere, going straight to the source, does that diminish the human experience? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, because we're getting Splenda instead of the real thing, right? So we have parasocial relationships. That's that's mm-hmm. your relationship with Tony Soprano instead of real social relationships. We're stuck on a hedonic treadmill. That's that's the dopamine tail chasing. It's called the hedonic treadmill. We're chasing pleasure. We're stuck on the hedonic treadmill instead of having culturally accepted ways of tolerating distress, tolerating the pain that comes with encountering life mm-hmm. and moving through it and growing. Um, it's it's a facsimile. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. And all of that is changing us. You know, there are, there are guys in Silicon Valley who, as weird as it sounds, are doing <laughs> thing called the dopamine fast, where they're aware that this kind of, we're addicted to dopamine, right? Like dopamine is technically the only thing you're ever really addicted to. So they will go on these extended periods where they just try to make their lives as quiet and boring as possible. Bland food, low light, no loud music, no social media of any kind to just kind of give their dopamine circuits a break, which it seems like some sort of very Eastern thing. Like it's, it's almost like a mindfulness retreat or something like that. And it's a bit extreme. Like they, they're a little intense in the way they do this, but, um, you know, I try to explain this to my daughter cause I see it in her. She's so she's six mm-hmm. and she knows that it's fun to get a treat at the store. Right. So we go to CVS mm-hmm. and CVS is the happiest place on earth. You know, it's the drugstore, but they have, <laughs> they have the section where they sell Claire's. Claire's boutique is now in CVS and they know what six year old girls like. They like stupid plastic junk with unicorns and rainbows and fairies on it. Different form of drug. <laughs> different form of drug. And she wants one, you know, she wants it. Or we go to Michael's and I'm like, you can get, you know, something that's under $5 and, she can't find anything and 
She's frantically grabbing for anything. What about this? What about this? What about this? And it scares me, you know? And I, I kind of like try to get down on her level and, and say, honey, I know it's so fun and so special to get a treat at the store and it feels really good. But the problem is that feeling doesn't last. And then you want to get it again and again, and it's never going to be enough. And mommy and daddy are here to help you with that feeling and to help you, you know, deal with the sadness of not getting the Trader Joe's gingerbread haunted house and to know that that's okay. You know, she immediately goes back to desperately scrabbling for trying to buy a thing, you know, but I think to know that we're up against a world that not only just happens to have all that, it's called a supernormal stimulus, by the way, they're called supernormal mm -hmm. stimuli. They're stimuli that are more powerfully plugged into our dopamine circuits than anything that was ever present in our early evolution, right? So we are in an environment where there are supernormal stimuli at every turn. It is not a personal failing that they are capturing your caveman mm -hmm. dopaminergic circuits. But knowing that I think does give us some freedom because we can start to make some choices. Like I took Facebook off my home screen on my phone. I didn't take it off completely, but yeah. it helped. It did help to take it off. It was a little less easy to just tap it. I made it one step harder for me to get it. Some people will turn their phones on dark mode. So it's a little less rewarding. All the developers out there know that they are triggering our dopamine circuits with infinite scroll. Infinite scroll gives you dopamine because it's plugging into our desire for novelty. Remember novelty mm. is one of those things. So they deliberately engineer these things. They are psychologists on the dark side who are using our psychology against us to make all of this technology much more addictive, to keep your eyeballs on so they can sell you stuff. Mm -hmm. And they've found that those kinds of arguments telling kids things like that helps them feel a little less addicted not not telling them it's not good for them but but telling them you know these advertisers they are just using you man and you know teenagers have a particularly acute sense of right and wrong and justice and you know they get duly outraged by that that can be helpful but i think help like for me as a therapist i feel like the boots on the ground piece of this is helping people navigate, deal with, experience, and make meaning from difficult and uncomfortable emotions. Mm. Helping people to grieve and mourn, right? With compassion and time. And, and so you said, you know, before we started, you said it would be great to hear about like your own personal experience with this. And I said, oh, good, because I'm in the middle <laughs> of it. So it's, it's a silly thing, but Last Monday, and I might cry on your podcast, Alec. That's all right. Um, last Monday, my husband lost his wedding ring. And it is surprisingly painful. It is a, it is a little thing. Um, and it's so fresh that I can't believe it's gone. It's not a person. We lost plenty of those, right, in the last year. Some of them were recently. I just got an email this morning that my my daughter's preschool chickens were killed by an animal this weekend. It's like, oh, the hits just keep on coming, don't they? Just more loss, you know? My high school friend, the patriarch of a beloved family, my husband's aunt, a, an old teaching pal of mine, like gone, 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 how can they be gone? And you sort of go and go and go, and you know, some of these people are out of sight, but my husband's wedding ring sat on his finger for 5,880 days. 
Fulton. And I look at my hand and I see my ring that has an inscription that matches the one that wasn't his. And I feel pain. And then I try to make it not be so. I try to work it out so that it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. even though it's already happened and it's gone forever. I'll buy him a new one. But every time I look at it, I'll know that it's not the same. It's going to take time. I was mad at him. I was so mad at first. And I had to work really hard to do something that I've been telling my clients to do lately and telling the students I train, which is I had to get on the same side of the problem instead of being on opposite sides. Mm -hmm. And I had to force myself over onto the same side so that I could look together with him at this loss. That's hurting him too. It was his ring. And it comes and it goes. And it hits every other loss. It hits the loss of my high school friend and makes it more real. It hits the loss of our dear family friends, patriarchs of their family. It hits the loss of my husband's aunt whose memorial was on Sunday. It hits the loss of the stupid chickens at my daughter's school, you know? And reminds me that nothing is forever. So I have to be patient and I have to be kind to myself and to him. And I have to sometimes put my head in his lap and cry and ask, how can it be gone? How can this hurt so much? You know, I took my my kids to get their flu shots last week and everyone who's listening, get your flu shots. (laughs) Um, But my oldest, you know, she was so brave and she didn't want to get it, but she did. She got her stickers and just on the way to the car, she just kept asking me, why did it hurt? And I was like, well, they stuck a needle in your arm, kiddo. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, they did. And then two seconds later, she'd be like, but why did it hurt? I'm like, yeah, well, there was a needle and they they stuck it into your arm to get to your bloodstream so that the the medicine could go where it needed to go. And then she would say, okay. And then two seconds later, she'd say, but why, why did it hurt? (laughs) And I think that's, that's grief. Like you just keep coming around to it. Why does it hurt? Mm-hmm. How can this be gone? How can it be this way? How can it be so painful? And then to have the compassion for ourselves and others to know that it will take time. And how can we be with each other in that grieving of something that is lost and will never come back? I think that's something that we need. We need to find ways of tolerating that pain. It's so much easier to reach for all of the wonderful delights that are in the world around us. It's so much more pleasant, but it's not what it means to be human. Mm. What does the ring mean to you? It's our story together. So my ring says, Who am I without you by my side? And his said, what is my life without your love? Which for the Beatles fans out there will know that it's Mm. a George Harrison song. The lyrics 
to his song, um, What Is Life? And we walked down the aisle to that song. In every picture I have of us together since we got married, he's wearing his and I'm wearing mine. It's our story together. Mm -hmm. The loss of it feels like a symbol of how careless we can be with things that are important and how much we can take things for granted that really matter. He thought it would always be there. So did I. And one day it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that's everything. That's everything. All things must pass. Like, all things must pass, just like George Harrison said. Um, it's a new story now, you know. Um, for those, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, you know that oh, there's yeah. the, one ring, the one ring to rule them all. Mm -hmm. That was his ring. I got him a replica of the one ring. <laughs> and I guess it's, uh, it was trying to return to its master. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe, maybe that was a bad omen. I don't know if I believe in omens, but maybe that was a bad association that um, represents a different phase in who he was. And he's not that person anymore. And he's a different person now. And maybe he needs a different ring to go mm -hmm. along with that person. I think as you're hearing me spin this, it doesn't mean anything. You know, mm -hmm. there is no objective meaning. It's a lump of gold that formed in a star millions of light years away and somehow made its way to this planet and got mined and turned into a ring that I bought off the internet. You know, <laughs> it looks like a ring that they made in a movie based on a book somewhere. What is any of that? Yeah. But meaning can always be made and meaning gets made out of suffering. You know, that's something that I've come to realize in my work as, as a therapist, as someone who works with parents, that, um, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of just go along when things are nice, but when the going gets rough, that's when we have to make sense of things, and that's where the meaning comes from. And you can make whatever meaning you want, you know, as long as it feels true. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, where do I begin? So <laughs> I watched The Hobbit for my first time six months ago. Oh, yeah. Six months ago, I watched The Hobbit, and uh, immediately I was hooked. I was hooked by the story. I was hooked yeah. by the story of going on an unexpected adventure and meeting all of these char characters along the way and experiencing life. And then I watched uh, Lord of the Rings back to back. Oh, yeah. So talk about, so you know dopamine and all these forms of addiction that was my week literally monday through sunday nothing but <laughs> hobbit and lord of the rings and they're long in the last lord of the rings three and a half four hours i had a difficult time sitting in one <laughs> i had to take breaks i had a difficult time it, sitting in one place like a snack you know you gotta oh yeah Oh yeah. You yeah, you gotta stretch, you gotta have a full-blown dinner in between. Yeah. It's it 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 is an experience of its own. But I will tell you this that after watching both of those, what they inspired me to do was to actually travel to explore. And so one of the things that I that I have coming up on the seventh of October is I'll be gone for about a year. Uh, Whoa. Um yeah, to Europe, Africa, Japan. And I will say that I, the thing that I can attest all that to are those films. Yeah. 
that's how much they inspired. That's how much they helped me see that, wow, there is a world outside of this world. There are other cultures, there are other people, other beings. So one of the, one of the stops that I'm planning to make is actually New Zealand. Oh yeah. There's a place where, I forgot what it's called, but it's essentially where they shot the movies, at least the Hobbit. And you can like book a tour. So I'm 100% finding a way to do that. But it's, it's fascinating how certain things can really influence you. And I also like what you mentioned in in regard to meaning and choice is I think that the number of influences and influencers, it's abundant. I mean, I think if anything, what I've learned is it's a matter of a frame that I'm looking at through. I can look at my dog right now and get some vision of going and doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Or I can take this conversation and go a hundred different directions. And I think that in itself is so powerful. And I, and I noticed for my journey, once I realized that a, there is a choice I can make and B the resources truly are always around me that I stopped waiting. I stopped Mm. waiting for that seven step to success course. (laughs) <laughs> and thinking that that's the thing that's going to bring me happiness and purpose and all these other things. And really what I ultimately begin to realize is that everything that I've ever been for- searching for has always been within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of experiences. It's a matter of conversations like this that just reaffirm that you've known this. Mm-hmm. You might not have had the language you might not have had the word, the, the whatever to articulate it. But that's been the most powerful thing that I realized about life is that at least I can only speak for my experience. I don't know what anyone else's experience is like, but I truly have realized that the, the resources have always been there. Mm. The mm. question is more so how can you be more resourceful with the resources at hand? Not necessarily how can you manifest more resources? Right. Right. Well, and and again, it's, we live in a quick fix world where that's another illusion. You know, I'm about, I'm about the slow fix. (laughs) There's one of the articles that I have my trainees read is called a slow unfolding at double speed. And it's about working with parents and infants where it's both slow and fast at the same time. Parents come into this particular clinic. It's called the Tavistock under fives clinic in London their child might be experiencing some very extreme or disturbing behavior, but the treatment is not a quick fix one. The treatment is, they slow down. It's a short treatment, but they slow down and try to understand what's the meaning of this behavior. What's it communicating in the larger system? Mm -hmm. It's not a quick fix. And I think the slow fix, the slow fix is in, or maybe not even a fix, but Maybe if we can just get away from the quick, we'll deal with the mm-hmm. fix later. Um, as a timestamp, I have a client who's supposed mm-hmm. to be here in four minutes. Let me see if she's telling me she's on time. She hasn't told me she's running late, but I have okay. four minutes until she's supposed to be here. How do people connect with you and where can people find all these articles and everything that you referenced? So um, I am a licensed psychotherapist, marriage and family therapist practicing in Los Angeles, California. I offer parenting consultations remotely and in person, and I can work throughout the state with people remotely. I do 
in-person and remote psychotherapy for parents who are struggling with their identity. I also do work with folks who are experiencing attachment trauma as well as industry creatives. And all of the stuff I've written, you can find it on my blog, which is livingincaptivity.blog. Mm -hmm. um, and that has information about how you get in touch with me in my private practice and can work with me if you're having trouble with your kids, if you're having trouble making meaning of your human experience in this planet, you're not alone. Um, mm. I'm somebody who can help you think about that and try to find meaning out of that suffering. So that's how you can find me, livingincaptivity.blog. I'm Rebecca Halford out here in Los Angeles, California. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.